All right, we're in First Kings chapter 4 this morning. First Kings chapter 4. As we look at this chapter this morning, as we think about what the author's primary purpose might have been in our text, I believe that his purpose is really to show us or reveal to us the different ways in which Solomon's wisdom was displayed. In other words, he's going to give us three different examples of how Solomon's wisdom played out. We've already seen one instance of this. You remember last week as he was presented with what appears to be his first civil case where two women came to him and asked him to decide which woman had killed her child and which one had not. So that was the first example we had seen. So he was working on settling a civil dispute between them. In chapter 4 here, we see his wisdom displayed in three other ways. The first is going to be his wisdom displayed in his administration. The second is going to be his wisdom displayed in how he helped maintain peace and prosperity for Israel. And then the third way that his wisdom is displayed is in its breadth or its, its depth. In other words, it will give us a good look at exactly what his wisdom included or involved. So we're going to start with the uh, first chunk here. Solomon's wisdom is displayed in his administration, which is the first 19 verses. This is going to be a time where we see how wisdom or how Solomon had used the wisdom that God had given him to set up his administration, his government. It includes his cabinet and governors that ruled over different regions of Israel. Because this passage follows directly on the heels of chapter 3 when Solomon was made king, we might think that this is probably very, very early in his time as king. Remember, he became king at age 20. He was fairly young. He, in his prayer to the Lord last week, he said he felt like a little child. He didn't know how to come in or go out, which is a reference primarily to ruling as king, including military endeavors. Didn't have much experience like that. When David became king, he was already 30 years of age and had spent 10 years with King Saul. And so here his son comes in, almost no experience. And so we look at this, and we might be tempted to automatically assume that this is one of the first things he did. The issue, though, is when we look at the list of names that are in this chunk here, Solomon actually mentions two of his son-in-laws in positions of authority in Israel, which means that more likely than not, what we have here is something that was a reference to his government probably 15 or 20 years into his reign. It's probably something he started early on, obviously, organizing. Um, but what we see here is probably reflective of somewhere in the middle of his reign or so. Because, again, having if he was 20 when he became king, he had to have time to have kids. And then those kids had to grow up and had to get married. Otherwise, we wouldn't have son-in-laws um, listed in the names here. So this is probably somewhere in the middle of his reign or so that we see revealed. Again, it doesn't mean that it's... You know, he didn't, that he waited until the middle of his reign to do this. But likely this is sort of his mature government, if you will. Now the first group of men that we see listed here are his chief officials. Look at the first six verses of chapter 4. Now, King Solomon was king over all of Israel. These were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elihoref and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat... The son of Ahilud was the recorder. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army. And Zadok and Abathar were priests. And Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the deputies. And Zadab, the son of Nathan, a priest, was the king's friend. And Ahashar was over the household. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the um, men subject to forced labor. So that's the first list we have there. These men were the heads of the different executive departments within Solomon's government. They included priests, secretaries, recorders. Those are the guys that made note of everything. Kind of the record keepers, if you will. Commander of the army, his deputies, his personal advisor. That included the head of his household, that who manages palace probably. The head of forced labor, all of these men. The best way to sort of liken this list of individuals here would be they were similar to the U.S. president's cabinet. You hear of his cabinet. We're going to play a little game here. We're going to test some of your knowledge. Does anybody know how many officials and departments there are in the cabinet of the president? It's a very specific designation. There are certain departments that make up, or departments and department heads that make up his cabinet. Anybody know how many 
um, cat or how many departments there are that fit under that, or how many department heads. Just start throwing out some because I'm going to ask you to name them here in a minute. We're going to really, really, really test your knowledge. Twenty. Okay, twenty. It's a good guess. Anybody else want to throw a number out there? It's actually fifteen plus the vice president. Now. Anybody know some of the names of these departments? There's some really easy ones. Yeah, Department of Education, the Department of Justice, Department of Energy, I mean, Transportation, Department of Defense. I mean, just rattle them off here for you, because you, you guys did a great job. There's 15 of them, plus the Vice President, all, all, and then the heads of each one of those make up the President's Cabinet. So we've got the Department of Agriculture, Commerce, Defense, Education, Energy, Health and Human Services, Homeland Security, HUD, which is Housing and Urban Development, the Interior, the Department of Justice, the Department of Labor, the Department of State, Transportation, the Department of the Treasury, and then the last one, Department of Veterans Affairs. So those are all the distinct parts of government. It's all, you know, they kind of govern the economy and all this other stuff, right? And so there's a head of each one of those, and that makes up the president's cabinet along with the vice president. Now, anybody know how many people are employed in all of these different departments and divisions? Yeah, too many. Exactly. It's a place to start, right? 3.2 million people currently. 3.2 million people. Now, if you really want to start to sweat, does anybody have any idea what the total budget is for these departments? Take a guess. Just throw out some numbers. 1.5 trillion. We've got a winner over here. $2 trillion as of last year. That's not quite half of our federal budget. The federal budget uh, two years ago, I believe, was $4.9 million, or $4.9 trillion. This year, we're already at 5.6, I believe, and we're, not been, we're only three-quarters of the way through the year. So it gives you an idea of, of how big our federal government is, and that doesn't include all of it. That's just the president's cabinet and all the different departments. There's a reason why I played this game in a minute. It takes a lot a lot of people, a lot of money and resources to run a government. And it was no different in Solomon's day, if you realize how big Israel was. Now, we're not talking $2 trillion, but we'll see in a minute here. So I appreciate you playing the game with me here. You guys are bright, smart group. So One of the things that stands out about this list of names that we see here, these individuals were his cabinet. They were the different divisions of his government. But one of the things that appears to stand out most among this is that the individuals that he put into these places were some of his most likely loyal friends and, and others. He was very wise about that, choosing people that he knew that had been faithful to him. Three of the men that are listed in chapter 1, verse 8, um, were those that sided with him when his son Adonijah tried to overthrow him and take, basically take his government from him. That's Zadok, the priest, Benaniah, and then Nathan, the prophet. So those three are mentioned, mentioned here as his part of his cabinet. With good reason. They remained faithful to him at a point when, had Adonijah succeeded, they would have been put to death. And yet they remained faithful to him, so he gave them positions of authority in his government as well. In addition, then, some of their own kin or their own sons were given positions as well. For instance, Zadok's son, Azariah, um, two of Nathan's son, another Azariah, and then the man named Zadub. Those were the sons of Zadok the priest and Nathan. So, uh, you know, a good number of these men here were close associates, people that, were, that he was familiar with that were um, loyal to him, sort of best friends. I always joked with Steve Schmuckel one day, I always told him, I said, if I ever become president, you're part of my cabinet. Because I've known him. I know what he would be like, you know. Um, when when um, I needed help, when I, I was in the Chicago title for a couple of years, and um, I needed some help because we had grown quite a bit. And I moved from working with realtors into more of a full-time IT role at Chicago title. And I just couldn't handle the load. We had, 
11 offices. We had 40 remote sites. We had 300 employees just in Columbus. And we were talking about adding Dayton and Cincinnati on top of that. And so I went to my boss and I said, I'm desperate for some help. And so he said, well, I'll, I'll hire somebody for you. But he left me out of the hiring process. I thought, how can you hire somebody when you're going to leave me out of the process? But he just insisted that he would do it. And so um, he basically hired somebody and she didn't show up on the first day. Left me high and dry. So then he started talking about hiring somebody else. I said, you need to leave me in on this process. And he, again, did the same type of thing again, and same thing kind of happened. Um, he hired somebody, and the guy turned out to be a disaster. He was more work than help. And now my workload was even worse, and I couldn't rely on him, and, and he would never do things the way that he was supposed to. And so I went to my boss, and I said, I, 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 we really need to hire somebody. We need to get rid of this guy and hire somebody else, and I have somebody in mind. And I was thinking about Steve. And even though Steve had no IT experience, I knew Steve. And I knew that he could be taught. I knew that he could be trusted. And that's what I needed was somebody that would just go out and do what I said needs to be done. Just somebody I can send out, not worry about it being done right, and just get it done. And my boss was like, but he doesn't have any experience. And I'm like, well, the first guy you hired, the girl you tried to hire, had a lot of experience. She didn't show up. The second guy had all kinds of experience, and look at him. Well, he didn't want to fire the guy because he was from Iraq. And it was in the middle of the Iraq war. And he's like, I can't fire the guy. So he finally said, go ahead, bring Steve in. And so Steve came in and interviewed. And um, he worked with me for about 10 years. But he was everything I expected him to be because I knew him. I knew I could trust him. And that's kind of what we get from Solomon here. He knew he could trust these guys. So it shows the wisdom there and how he set up and how he brought in these men to help him with his government. Now, outside of these individuals here, he also had a group of governors that he set up. And these governors served throughout all of Israel. And their purpose was to, to basically govern these different regions. And so we have his cabinet, those that worked closely with him right there at the palace. And then we have these governors. If you look at verses, um, well, just we're not going to read all of it because it's, just, it's, it's a lot of list of names. And I stumbled over the names already as it is. I'll let you read through those names. You can play games with those if you'd like to. But um, I'm going to read one particular verse. It's verse 7. But if you look at at verses 7 through 19, it's a list of all of these governors and the regions that they looked over. But look at verse 7. It says, Solomon had 12 deputies over all Israel who provided for the king and his household. Each man had to provide for a month in the year. That's an important verse because what Solomon basically did was he divided Israel into into these 12 different districts. And what's interesting is these districts did not fall along tribal lines. If you know, if you remember, there's 12 tribes in Israel. They all had their regions and their areas. Well, this doesn't fall along those lines. Instead, he divided the area up into these 12 divisions. We're not told you know, a, a ton about those divisions. We're given some details here. Um, the land and the areas and other things. We could probably draw ourselves a map. But he basically divided Israel up into 12 regions. And it appears the reason he did that was because there are 12 months in the year. And for each one of the months, one of these governors would be responsible providing for the needs of Solomon's government. They would bring in food and and other things to support the government. And so each one of these governors would oversee a region, and their job was to supply Solomon's government with whatever he needed. Now, his kingdom was pretty vast. And by doing this, it allowed him not just to govern all of Israel, but actually sort of oversee and govern in some respects, watch countries that were outside the borders of Israel. His kingdom stretched all the way from the border of Egypt in the south to the Euphrates River all the way in the north, and then extended inland from the, the sea about 100 miles across. A total of about 13,000 square miles, and that was just the land within Israel's border. But then his influence extended even beyond that and outside to the countries all around that who would bring him tribute would bring in gold and silver and food and animals and horses and all kinds of stuff. So he he oversaw this vast, this massive, massive area, much bigger than Israel today. The actual borders given here was slightly bigger than Israel today. But Solomon, really, his influence, his power, was well beyond the borders of Israel even today. Now, one of the main responsibilities, again, of these governors were to bring in and to provide for Solomon's 
government. It calls it his household, his palace, but that was the, basically the government palace, the government headquarters, if you will. Now what's interesting is we're going to see how some of this plays out a little bit later with what they bring into him. But most scholars estimate that Solomon had somewhere between 14,000 and 32,000 government employees. So that was a big group of people. That's why we played the game earlier. It's a big thing to run a government. It does require quite a few people. You know, those of us that uh, generally call ourselves conservatives believe in limited government, but even limited government requires resources, does it not? Requires employees. There are certain things that, that God has ordained governments to do and to take care of. And so Solomon, and when we look at this, what the, the first thing that the author does here is he gives us an idea of Solomon's wisdom and how he arranged his government. He started with a close group of, of men that he trusted, who became his advisors and managed his household, people that he knew, their children, people that he could trust, became his closest advisors. But then in addition to that, he was very wise about the way that he divided up the area, put governors in different areas that would oversee those areas, but would also then bring in the resources needed to manage his government. So the first thing we see there is how his wisdom was displayed in his administration. Now, the second way that we see his wisdom displayed here is in how he maintained peace for Israel. That's in verses 20 through 28. When we think of Solomon's legacy, we think of his wisdom, generally speaking. But that's only part of it. The land that God had shown to Abraham the land that he had promised to Israel through Moses, the land that Joshua had then conquered, and ultimately the place that David brought peace, were all now in Solomon's hands. And it was Solomon's responsibility now to maintain that peace in Israel through the wisdom that God had given to him. Think about it, this is probably the most incredible time of peace, prosperity, and power in Israel's history. There was never anything like it prior to this, And there has never been anything like it since. Look at verses 20 through 21. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Again, this massive Region, not just Israel, but even extending to the land of the Philistines and down to Egypt. We remember um, last week when we're told Solomon made an arrangement, a treaty, if you will, with, with Egypt. It was probably a trading agreement, probably not a peace agreement because Israel could have squashed Egypt like a bug. So it was a trading arrangement. The, re- the, the regions, the nations all outside of Israel recognized Solomon's power, authority. We're going to see in a little bit here his wisdom. They recognized his wealth. And so Solomon's job now was to maintain the peace that David had actually brought to Israel. And we see that, again, this was probably at least halfway through his reign as king, and it says that Israel was basically as vast and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They were eating, they were drinking, rejoicing, all description of a tremendous time of peace. We get kind of a good picture of the kind of resources that were necessary to maintain that if you look at verses 22 through 28. This relates back to those governors. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over everything west of the river, from Tisha even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river, beyond Israel's borders, and he had peace on all sides all around him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and its fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Those deputies provided for King Solomon, those are the governors, and all who came to King Solomon's table, each in his month, they left nothing lacking, They also brought barley and straw for the horses and swift steeds to the place where it should be, each according to his charge. Just to give you kind of an idea, the the first thing that we see there with the cores of flour and the 60 cores of meal, those were designed there to take care of his government. That's what fed the 14 to 30 some odd thousand people. When we look at just that first one, because you're probably all thinking, I wonder how much that is. We don't know what a core is today. But 30 cores of fine flour is about anywhere from 45 to 80 gallons or so. 
of wheat or flour. Um, that would be the equivalent of probably, you know, remember, I like to watch Little House on the Prairie, or now I've been watching Bonanza lately. You know, you see them, they would bring the wheat or they would bring um, corn in these bags. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know how much is considered that, but um, according to some of the research I could find, this is probably anywhere from 35 to maybe 70 bags of flour like that, those big bags. Now the meal, the cornmeal, most likely cornmeal here, um, probably amounted to maybe 130 bags or so. Um, that's a lot. Estimates are that it could feed at least 15 to 30,000 people. That's partly why they estimate that that's what Solomon's government was. So these are what the governors actually brought into him. Now, if you notice, as we look at this, it says that Israel lived in safety, each man under his vine and under his own fig tree. That's a definition of prosperity. So there wasn't just peace. There was prosperity in Israel. Um, their farms were growing like they should. They, they had grapes like they should. The fig trees were all doing what they should. They were experiencing God's tremendous blessing at this time. And again, we're about halfway in probably to Solomon's reign at this point. He's doing a good job of maintaining peace and his influence. And what's interesting to me is that we know that ultimately God is the one that's behind this, Right? We know that he's the one that brings it about. But it's interesting that the author here continually attributes this to Solomon. He's not ignoring God, but he's giving credit to Solomon for doing this. Look at verse 21. It says, Solomon ruled over. If you look at verse 21, the second half of that, they brought tribute and served Solomon. Verse 22, Solomon's provision for one day, meaning his government. Um, Verse 24, for he, Solomon, had dominion over everything west of the river. Verse 24 again, and he, Solomon, had peace on all sides around him. The the point of this is the author is recognizing that the wisdom that God had given to Solomon, Solomon had used to maintain peace and prosperity in Israel. And it started with the way that he arranged his administration to now the way that he had governed and helped to maintain the peace that David had brought to Israel. Now, one of the things that really stands out to me about this, and I think it's, it's important to note, but I think it's also impossible not to see, and it's the covenant imagery that we find here. Um, in an earthly sense, almost everything that the Lord had promised through his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and even David, almost everything, not everything quite yet, but almost everything in an earthly sense, has come to pass at this point. Remember, God told Abraham that his descendants would be like this land of the, or they would be like the, the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky, and that's exactly what the author tells us here. They were promised prosperity and peace as they came out of the Exodus. The Lord told them, "If you will do what I tell you to do, if you give me your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love me that way, you'll have prosperity. I'll cause you to prosper. I'll give you peace." Those are all things that the Lord had promised Israel as a result of the covenant with them. Now Israel's pattern throughout the Exodus, the conquest, and even the book of Judges tells us that it wasn't going to last. We know that's the case. They get taken off into captivity. But ultimately, at this point, there's a tremendous amount of covenant imagery here that God has fulfilled for Israel in a temporal, earthly sense exactly what he said that he would do. Now there's two types. Remember, that's a theological term for examples that we find in this. One of them is the peace, prosperity that we find under Solomon here is a foreshadowing of what's to ultimately come. We just got done doing our, our, section, our, our study on eschatology, and one of the things that we saw was that a time is going to come where Jesus will reign on an earthly throne as David's descendant. He will take his rightful place there. He will rule for a thousand years in an earthly sense. And it will be a time of peace and prosperity. He will govern that. That will be the ultimate fulfillment of the earthly promises made to Solomon or to um, Abraham and to David. And so what we see here in Solomon is a foreshadowing of that. Because Solomon's time was every bit that, except that it couldn't be maintained. Israel was vast, they, they were the influence in the area, they had peace, they had prosperity, but they wouldn't be able to maintain it. It would be different when Christ comes. Instead of being, in this case with Solomon, it was probably 40, 50 years of peace before it all started to collapse and fall apart. So instead of being that, it would be a thousand years. 
And then we have even beyond that, the permanence of that, as we see the new created, the new heavens and the new earth, that we have peace ultimately going on into all of eternity. And so this, one of the types that we find here is that, sol, or that um, this time of peace in Israel is a foreshadowing. It's a type, an example of what to expect during the thousand year reign of Christ. Now the second type we find in here is in Solomon himself. Because Solomon here is serving as this wise king that oversees his people, maintains prosperity and peace. But not only that, he has an influence that goes beyond Israel's border to all of the world. That's exactly what we will see when Christ takes the throne in Israel. All the kings will recognize the authority and the wisdom of Christ. They will all come to worship him. And so Solomon here serves as a type, an example of Christ serving during the millennial reign as well. And so basically we have so far these two examples of wisdom here of Solomon. The way that he set up his administration and arranged Israel, his government. But then secondly, the way that he maintained peace for Israel required a tremendous amount of wisdom and knowledge in how he did that. The last example we're going to see is found in verses 29 through 34. And that's the wisdom displayed in its breadth or its depth. Um, the author reminds us here that the source of Solomon's wisdom was God himself. There's no question about that. Go ahead and read with me verses 29 through 34. Let me flip the page here. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breath of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite, uh, Haman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows in the wall. He spoke also of the animals and the birds and the creeping things and fish. Men came from all the people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So the first thing that the author does here is he reminds us that Solomon's wisdom came from the Lord. And we know that was part of it. As we talked about last week back in chapter um, 3, Solomon asked the Lord for a heart that was basically bent on obedience. But as part of that, in having a heart that would be, would be um, inclined to obey the Lord, through that he would then have wisdom and discernment knowing between good and evil. That's where the wisdom came from. And so Solomon's request wasn't so much wisdom as it was this heart to obey the Lord. As a result of that, God gave him wisdom. And so the author reminds us here that the Lord gave Solomon wisdom. Now, there's three phrases or words that he actually uses here to describe wisdom. Because sometimes when we think of wisdom, we think of one thing. But there's three different words or phrases that the author uses here that gives us a better description of what was included with Solomon's wisdom. The first is actually just the plain word, wisdom. In describing the difference between wisdom and knowledge, I once heard it said that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. Which makes sense, right? Wisdom is more than knowledge. Wisdom involves insight, perception, skill, and putting knowledge to good use. So knowledge is one thing. That's an accumulation of facts and figures and things, right? But wisdom is knowing how to use it. Wisdom is what you do with it. You can be extremely brilliant. You can be extremely intelligent, but not be very wise. In fact, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated wisdom, is used to describe skill even in managing things, in doing mental work, in leading people, and even being prudent or shrewd. The most important thing about wisdom, though, is that all genuine wisdom, real wisdom, comes from God and begins with a knowledge and a reverence for him. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When we started our last four weeks in our systematic theology series, um, when we started talking about eschatology, I think I might have mentioned, actually it might have even been in the introduction of the series as a whole, that there was a time where theology, the study of God's Word, was considered to be the queen of all sciences. 
because they believed that in order to understand any of the earthly sciences, you had to understand theology. You had to understand the Lord. And that without an understanding of the Lord, you could not understand any of the sciences. That's one of the reasons why almost every branch of modern science was either started, originated by, or highly influenced by Christians. We went through a long list of those during our study on theology. Because understanding, wisdom, knowledge, it all begins with properly understanding who God is. If you, do, if you want to understand the world around us, if you want to understand the sciences that describe those things, then you have to understand the one who created them first and foremost. And so, you know, I think about our own history here in the United States. Um, how many of our public universities started as seminaries and Bible colleges? Yale, Princeton, others. That's the way that it was. Why? Because that's where education started. Even our public schools, most of our public schools were started by churches, by Christians. They taught reading and writing through the scriptures, through the Bible. Why? Because their understanding was, if we don't understand God, we can't understand anything else. So the first word that he uses here is wisdom, and it's this idea of a practical understanding of God's knowledge and the things that come from him. And that's where Solomon's wisdom began. Remember, it began with him saying, give me a heart that wants to obey. Give me a heart that wants to ultimately know and understand you. The second phrase that the author uses here to describe Solomon's wisdom is very great discernment. Essentially, this refers to understanding and insight. Um, Some of your translations may say understanding beyond measure or very great insight one thing to gather facts and figures it's another thing to commit them or it's another thing to commit them to memory but even beyond that it's an entirely different thing to understand them isn't it you know you can cram all kinds of stuff into your head and cram for a test or an exam and it's just dropping I'll call it throwing up on the page <laughs> just regurgitating in fact in some respects that's what our universities have become today is it not you know, there's not much room for debate or discussion if you don't carry the same opinion as a professor. You dare not open your mouth because what they really want is for you simply to be able to regurgitate what it is that they try to cram into your head full of mush, as Rush Limbaugh used to say. I was watching this documentary. I think it was a PBS documentary just a couple of weeks ago on Benjamin Franklin. found it fascinating. If you understand anything about Benjamin Franklin, you know that he was a writer, an entrepreneur, he was a successful business owner, he was an inventor, he was a statesman, a politician, a philosopher. The guy did just about everything. And I remember, you know, the, we, what we all know about Benjamin Franklin is, you know, the, the idea that he discovered electricity. He didn't. didn't discover electricity. He discovered some properties about it. But you all remember the story of the kite, right? Well, what I found fascinating about this was, at the time... It was thought that electricity played a part in lightning strikes. And they they had an idea. I mean, that was general consensus. But nobody had been able to prove it. Out of all the great scientists during Benjamin Franklin's time, nobody could figure out a way to prove that lightning was electricity. Until Benjamin Franklin. He designed the experiment with the kite to prove the theories that already existed that lightning was caused or was basically electricity. Nobody else was able to do that. But he did because that's the way that Benjamin Franklin thought. But even beyond that, something else that was rather interesting is once he was able to prove that, he then went on and figured out how to use that and he basically started a company that produced the first lightning rods to protect the wooden structures. There were thousands of wooden structures. And so, in his mind, and this is where wisdom comes into play, he understood, had knowledge of electricity, figured out a way to prove that lightning was electricity, but then even beyond that, saw the practical applications of that and put it into practice so that he could save buildings from being burned to the ground. And you know what? He, I don't know if he ever patented any of his inventions. He just gave it away. How about, man, what a great example of wisdom. Because it's not just understanding electricity. He can see beyond that. And he did this with so many areas 
of his life. So many of his inventions were things that didn't just involve knowledge, but he could see beyond that and figure out practical uses for them, things to do with them, ways that they could benefit society and culture. He was, he was a master statesman because he could get into, he could understand how people would think. And so he, you know, he spent a lot of his time, basically, a lot of time away from his wife because he spent it all overseas. But the things that he was able to do with, with um, politics and, and other things was just brilliant because he could see beyond just plain facts and figures. He had this understanding that is so lacking. I, I think I got a good example from my own life where it's kind of the opposite of that. So doing IT work, I work with a lot of cables. And so there's data cables, there's phone cables, all that kind of stuff, you know. And I understand you know, that there's electricity that runs through some of them and whatnot, right? So I remember I was downtown at the courthouse one time and I was having to do some work trying to figure out why a phone jack wasn't working properly for our fax machine at the courthouse. And so I'm crawling around underneath the desk, you know, and I grabbed a hold of the, you know, I had a little coupler in there because we had it split to two different desks. And so I kind of grabbed the wires and I pulled them off the little phone cords, you know. And you guys, some of you may not know what those are. We used to have to plug our phones into the wall, by the way. Um, so I remember kind of grabbing one, and I grabbed the other one, and I, and I had to grab a third one because there's a little splitter there. And I'm thinking, use my mouth. And so I took it, and I went, and I bit down on it. Have you ever bit down on a phone cord before? You see, data cables for computers don't do this. There's not enough electricity in them. But that little phone cord... All I know is I saw white, and the next thing I know, I'm about six feet back with a large lump on the back of my head because I hit it on the desk when it forced my body to stand up. I don't know if it's amperage or if it's voltage. It's probably amperage because there's not much voltage in a phone cord. I know that. I know that you can touch those things and get a little zap, but I still, anyway, just grabbed it and bit down on it thinking I just use it as an extra hand. But literally, like I said, I, I was underneath the desk and I must have just stood up. I don't remember much of it. I just remember big white flash and literally sitting back against some filing cabinets with a big lump on the back of my head. Didn't have the cords in my hand anymore and nothing in my mouth. But there's a certain lack of wisdom there because I wasn't thinking through the consequences of doing what I had just done. But I knew full well there was electric current in it because that's the way that phones work, Right? So, the second phrase that he used here for Solomon gives us an idea that it went beyond just understanding this ability to sort of see and recognize. And we saw that with the two women, you know? He was able to kind of get into their heads. You know what, if I just sort of talk, think about cutting this kid in half, the mom who rightly gave birth to this son is going to speak up. And she's going to be willing to give that child up. That's wisdom. The last phrase that's used is breath of mind like sand that is on the seashore. This word can be mind or heart, but it's likely mind in this case here. That he had a breath of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. What's being described here is a vastness or a breath or a depth to Solomon's wisdom and knowledge. You know, we know... You probably know some people that might be wise in one area or wise in maybe two areas. But then occasionally you meet those people that just seem to be wise about everything, right? And that's the way Solomon was. He was wise about everything, not just in his knowledge, but in his understanding and his perceptions. In fact, we're told a number of things here about it. It says, it says that it surpassed all the greatest minds, and he says, he mentions two of them here, Babylon and Egypt. And the reason for that was Babylon and Egypt were considered the seats of academia, Knowledge and wisdom in the ancient Near East. That's that. that was the sort of the seat of education and learning and knowledge and, and everything else. Babylon and Egypt. It says that he was wiser than not just those, but all men. He even lists a few examples. He mentions Ethan, Haman, Calcol, and Dara. Now, not much is known about these, but they were all brothers. And they apparently were, were skilled musicians and singers. In fact, Haman wrote Psalm 88... And Ethan wrote Psalm 89. So these were apparently extremely gifted musicians, and so his knowledge and wisdom extended even into music, we're told. Um, poetry and Psalms, it says that he wrote over 3,000 Proverbs, which we know are poetry. 900 of those are included in the book of Proverbs, which means there's an awful lot that Solomon wrote that we don't have. 
We're told that he wrote 1,005 songs. We've only got, I think, uh, two or three of those in Psalms. Psalm uh, 72 and Psalm 127 were written by Solomon. But he was a prolific musician. Song of Solomon's is attributed to him as well. Another book. Something else that we're told here by the author. How many of you know what the, um, the study of trees is called? I had to look this one up. You'd, yeah, you couldn't think so. It's dendrology. Yeah, dendrology. I never even heard of that before. But he was apparently an expert in dendrology because it says that he lectured on the study of trees. And he even lists some different kinds there. Um, in fact, it lists two different ones there. If I remember, um, it's basically the ideas from the smallest to the largest, which means that he had a vast understanding of dendrology, a PhD, if you will, in dendrology. How about the study of birds? Anybody know what that is? Yeah, ornithology. I had to look that one up too. Um, then lastly, even zoology. So when you look at that, it says that you know, he not only understood how to, how to set up his cabinet, he understood politics and all that, he understood how to settle civil, dispi- uh, civil disputes, so he was a good judge, he knew how to maintain peace, he knew how to govern a, a large, vast group of people, he knew how to maintain um, not just the borders of Israel and maintain peace there, but even influence beyond Israel to this whole entire region. But he also was apparently a lecturer of sorts. Because if you look at the very last thing we're told there, verse 33, is that right, verse 33? Yeah, verse 33. He spoke of trees and cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. So the cedars are the largest, the hyssop were the small vines that grow on the, the walls. He spoke of animals, birds, creeping things, and fish. So even insectology, if you will, and fish. And it says that men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And so meaning that he was a lecturer of sorts. He gave talks on these things and people from all over the ancient Near East sought him out and came to hear him lecture on these things. This dude was like a modern day Benjamin Franklin. You know, he did every. he just knew everything it appeared. And that's the way that his wisdom is described. And so we see these three examples of Solomon's wisdom, what God had given to him. Now, what's our takeaway from all this? I've got two takeaways um, for all this. One of the takeaways is that genuine wisdom is all-encompassing. You know, we have a tendency to think of wisdom in sort of two categories. There's, you know, spiritual wisdom, and that's usually what we think of. And then there's non-spiritual wisdom or secular wisdom. Wisdom and that well, you generally equate that more with knowledge and things like that, but the Bible doesn't purvey it or, or um, portray it that way. Knowledge and wisdom go hand in hand, and it goes beyond just the spiritual. In other words, if a person is wise, he isn't typically wise in just spiritual matters. He is wise in everything. He understands. He's he's wise about life and decisions and, and intelligence and other things. That's the way the Bible portrays it. And it says that all of this begins with an understanding of who God is and a reverence for him. Kimberly and I went through um, Proverbs passage in Proverbs not too long ago and really focused on the idea that if you really want to be wise it has to begin with this desire and this devotion to cry out to the Lord for wisdom cry out to the Lord for an obedient heart cry out to him for knowledge and understanding but first and foremost about him and in doing those things the Lord then rewards us with wisdom and so here we see with Solomon all the different areas that his wisdom extended to. So wisdom is more than just spiritual things. In Solomon's case, it was writing the book of Proverbs, it went to civil matters, it went to administration, managing resources, governance, building wealth, maintaining peace, writing poetry and songs, lecturing on all kinds of sciences, even to architecture and interior design because he helped build the temple, took David's plans and then built his own palace as well. There was a time when wisdom was understood that way, encompassed more than just simple decisions and involved understanding who God is. And so genuine wisdom extends beyond that. I I am convinced that Christians, when they are wise, (laughs) 
when they genuinely fear the Lord are some of the smartest people in the world. Again, you go back in our history and you look at sciences. Some of the greatest discoveries in history were made by Christians, those who loved the Lord. Where did it all start? Their love for the Lord. I just downloaded an article from Reasons to Believe. It was one of these emails I got from Reasons to Believe, which is a, an old earth ministry. It, um, they believe that, they, 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 I'll just say they worship the sciences. It's the best way to describe it. And they end up twisting and perverting the scriptures to fit this old earth theology that just doesn't work. And it was interesting because they, they sent me this paper that was about 30 pages long. And just reading through parts of it, my heart just sank because you could see their fondness and their affection for all things secular and the way that they would twist and pervert the scriptures to support that. That's not wise. And these, they've got a lot of good scientists, very knowledgeable, but they're not very wise. And then I counterbalance that with so much of what I see with Answers in Genesis, where if you've ever listened to, to um, Ken Ham, he always places the emphasis on the authority of the scriptures. That's always first and foremost. He's an evangelist. When you see him on a debate stage, oftentimes he's the only one, even if there's additional Christians up there, he's the only one with his Bible in his hand. He's oftentimes the only one that will quote scripture. Why is that? Because that's where it all begins, and he understands that. And so my heart just sank as I read through this because it's a fairly large ministry. Deceives a lot of people. There's no wisdom there, a lot of knowledge, but not just wisdom because there's no reverence for God's word like we would expect. They'll claim that they do, but they don't in practice. So our first takeaway there is a genuine wisdom extends beyond just spiritual things. It extends into sciences and academics and governance. The second takeaway for me was kind of an indirect one. And that's related to everything we've said so far, that knowledge without the fear of the Lord is nothing but vanity. So knowledge without fear is not wisdom. It's vanity. Um, There's no value to it. As we're going to see at the end, and this is sort of forward-looking, out of the the 11 chapters that we'll study in here, the first 10 describe Solomon as this wise, obedient, God-fearing man who brought prosperity to Israel. And then all of a sudden the brakes get hit in chapter 11. And right out of the gate, the author tells us Solomon chose to love something else other than the Lord, and it led to him forsaking the Lord. Train wreck, late in his life, when knowledge was all it was. No more wisdom at that point. And it's because he chose to start worshiping these other foreign gods. There's no explanation for it. I don't know that we'll ever really completely have one. We'll try our best to get through it. But the author tells us he chose to love something else. And at that point, Solomon's wisdom disappeared. And all he had left was knowledge. I'm sure he remembered the trees and the birds and his administration and all that kind of stuff. But at that point, it was all just vanity. And we see that described in the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of you were around when we studied the book of Ecclesiastes back at Grace. You may remember that my perspective on the book, this one shared by Tremper Longman, um, Tremper Longman is not somebody I agree with on a lot of things, Um, his view on creation for instance is very different than mine he's an old earth person but he's got some really neat insights and good insights in some other areas of Old Testament theology and one of his proposals on the book of Ecclesiastes is that it wasn't written by Solomon and I share that conviction I don't believe that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon and part of the reason for that is if you look at the book it's written much like a play and what you have is an author who's writing in the first person describing Solomon in the beginning then he takes on the persona of Solomon, that's where the play begins, and he has Solomon speak to us. But he, the language there is very depressing. It's not a positive, uplifting book. It's that everything is vanity, everything is vain. And that's exactly what we came to expect of Solomon at the end of his life. And then the book closes where it goes back to the author and begins to speak in the first person again, and he tells us why he wrote the book as a warning to his son, ultimately, don't be like Solomon. I want to read you the close to his book. Okay? Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12.
This is what the author tells us. After, and again, I believe the author crafted this book to give us an insight into Solomon's mind at the end of his life when it truly was vanity for Solomon. He was no longer wise. He had abandoned the Lord. He had forsaken the Lord. And so he didn't see much value in life at that point. And so we get to chapter 12 when the author begins now, he comes back and he begins to speak to us himself in the first person. Starting in verse 9, he says, In addition to being a wise man, the preacher, he's talking about Solomon originally in most of his life, being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and he pondered, searched out and arranged many proverbs. That's all true of Solomon. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. That's true. The words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son... Be warned. Why should he be warned? The writing of many books is endless. An excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. That's a reference to Solomon's commitment to his academics, his lecturing, other things. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. In other words, this, the author's conclusion was that Solomon, probably the wisest man who have ever lived, okay, ended up at the end of his life not obeying God, not fearing the Lord. And so in that respect, everything became vain. It was nothing more than just knowledge, no longer wisdom. And so he wrote this as a warning to his son. And I think the, the challenge for us this morning then is when we think about, and I think about college kids, you know, I think about Amy and Sydney, and I think about Ryan, I pray for, for all of you guys on a, almost on a morning, a morning basis. Um, the most important thing as you pursue your academic career, the most important thing for any of us as we try to understand anything, as we learn more about politics or things that are happening in our world today, the most important thing is that we understand them from God's perspective and that what's more important than accumulating the knowledge of those things is how we then apply it to honor and to glorify him. That's the way it works. You know? I think about that in my own life with my own job. I have to constantly learn. But I always have to keep in mind why I'm learning, who I'm supposed to honor with that, what I'm supposed to do with that, because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Plain and simple. And Solomon ultimately ended up forgetting that by the end of his life. How? Again, I can't explain it. Except that his heart turned to love pagan women who led his heart astray into idolatry. But at this point in his life, we see his wisdom through his administration, through his ability to keep peace and maintain peace in Israel, but also in all of the other things, the breadth of knowledge that God gave him about things. But even here, as the author tells us, the writing of many books is wearisome when that's the pursuit, and it appears that that's what happened to Solomon ultimately. Knowledge, but to forfeit wisdom. I pray that doesn't happen to us.